Thank you, Dan, choir and instrumentalists. You lead us to worship in such wonderful ways every week. We're thankful for you. We'll be in Mark chapter 8 as we continue our sermon series in the book of Mark. If you want to open your Bibles there. Do you know the name Edwin Thomas Booth? Edwin Booth. Edwin lived most of the 1800s. He was an American actor. He toured our country and the major capitals of Europe performing Shakespearean plays. Well, in 1869, he even founded his own spectacular theater in New York. Some theater historians consider him the greatest American actor of all time. But most of us have never heard of this perhaps greatest American actor. Do you know why? Because Edwin's brother was named John Wilkes Booth. Edwin's achievements are overshadowed by his brother, also an actor, but we only know him because he assassinated President Lincoln. There's a lot in a name, isn't there? Who we are associated with can define us, can't it? I think sometimes we instinctively know our reputation, our identity is even on the line. So we seek to tweak and mold how we're known just a little bit, don't we? You can watch this in so many ways in life. The rude, boisterous person comes into the room and you can just watch the crowd back up and back away from the person. I'm at a stage in, uh, in my life that's sort of interesting. Many folks my age love to be known by the cool stickers we put on the backs of our cars or even the hip or even hipster clothing that we wear. As guys, we like rough, tough mountain biking gear or climbing brands, fishing gear, or to identify with however many marathons or Spartan races we've run. So we put these numbers on our car that mean nothing to anyone. So everybody has to ask us, what does 13.1 mean? Well, let me tell you what it means. <laughs> but here's the, the funny thing about this. In truth, as young adults, if we were known in reality by how we spent our money, if our stickers or what we put on the backs of our cars represented us truly, we would all have Pampers or Huggies stickers on the backs of our cars, or it would say mortgage really big there. I've never seen someone with a Charmin sticker on the back of their car. In our passage this morning, Jesus addresses his own identity and that of his disciples. How is he known? What do people think of him? How will his disciples be known? And we're going to ask ourselves, are we willing to be known by Jesus? Are we willing for others to associate him with us, no matter the cost? Dr. Batson's been doing such a great job of taking us through Mark's gospel. We've seen how the author moves immediately to the next thing. It's written so well around the wonder, the fascination, the crowds chattering. Who is this guy? The demons bow down to him. His authority, not like any other teacher, he can heal anything. So far in Mark, he's healed sickness, blind eyes, paralyzed legs, a woman with bleeding for 12 years who nobody could heal, leprosy, the dreaded disease that no one could touch. Jesus touches. The person is healed. A storm that caused seasoned fishermen to fear for their lives. Jesus says, hush, be still. And the stormy sea becomes like glass. Mark 4, 41, at the end of him calming the stormy seas, they say, who is this man that even the wind and the waves obey him? 
Everybody was wondering it. And Mark has used this question to frame his gospel. It's his theme. Who is this guy? Well, Jesus begins our conversation in chapter 8, verse 27, picking up that very theme. But now it's coming from him. Who do people say that I am, he asks his disciples. Sort of an easy question. Everybody's been asking this. The thing is, no one dared to answer it. It's a new level to go public with something, isn't it? It's one thing to buy more Huggies than you ever dreamed. It's another thing to put a sticker on the back of your car, isn't it? How ironic that so far only the demons have been bold enough to call Jesus for who he really is. The disciples say, well, John the Baptist, some say, others say Elijah, others say one of the prophets. Can you hear them kind of talking around the central issue? Then Mark's theme comes straight from Jesus' lips. Who do you say that I am? I think our Lord wants to ask you and me the very same question this morning. Who do you, who do I say that he is? Three questions and answers this morning from our text. Number one, can we get right what Peter gets right? The confession. Can we get right what Peter gets right? You are the Christ. He nails it. He takes a stand. He gets it right. Best day ever. Let's think for a few moments about public versus private faith. I'm not talking about the show-off in their face, somebody who tries to act more than they are, always taking center stage. That's another sermon for another day. I'm asking you and me, are we willing to be publicly known as Christians? Are we willing to be associated with Jesus? He asks his disciples that, and I think he's asking us the very same question. Are we willing to step out like Peter? He steps out. He takes a stand. You are the Christ. Publicly, I'm saying it in front of everyone. A while back, I had to get some staples right here in the front of my head because I leaned back in a chair and a Yankee candle fell on my head, split my head open. It was nasty. <laughs> well, since the injury was right there in the middle, in the front of my head, everyone was asking me what happened. I have to tell you, as a man... Those were some hard moments, to be honest. <laughs> I wanted to say I rescued an elderly lady who was getting robbed, or uh, I was climbing Mount Everest, you know, in a piece of ice, or even to say my son and I were wrestling, and he's such a hoss, he got me. Instead, I had to say, a Yankee candle took me out. <laughs> Are we ready for our reputation, our identity to be all wrapped up in our Lord? For many people in the world who might intellectually agree that Jesus is the Messiah inwardly, outwardly that answer to being associated with him is no. No, thank you. I don't, I don't want to be known as a freak. I don't want anyone to think I'm a religious nut. My faith is just that. It's mine. It's private. It's confidential. It's hush, hush. But notice Jesus won't allow his disciples that. For others, it's my friends. They really, if they knew who I was, they just wouldn't accept me. Well, if they really cared about you, wouldn't they really want to know what you care about? He's intentionally asking them. It's time to go on record. This morning, I wonder if he's asking you that very same thing. Maybe you, for you, it's always been, no, it's just hush, hush. I, I can't let it out. Maybe it's your time to go on record. 
There is so much freedom in just being honest. I'm a Christian and I don't want it to be hidden anymore. Tell them. Tell them. When Amy and I were, uh, had moved back to Amarillo, uh, when we came here, we were looking at houses and we went into a house just a few blocks from where we live now. It's a beautiful home. But all the b- belongings of the previous tenant had been removed except one thing. One possession was left. This man's books. I don't know if you know this, but I sort of have a problem. I love books. I mean, I love them. I'm a nerd and proud of it. They are my friends, my conversation partners, and you can just leave me alone. As we were walking around this house, I realized pretty quickly that these were not just any books. This was a theological library. As I walked around more of these empty rooms, I lost all HGTV interest in these rooms, this house itself, because I realized this guy has church history volumes and commentaries and John Wesley and Spurgeon, and you could find these in top seminaries around the world. It was so strange. Nothing else was left. And I'm thinking, these books are about to get trashed. They're one step from the dumpster. Well, we leave and I can't get them out of my head, and so I just called the realtor out of the blue, the other realtor, and I said, hey, I don't know if those books are going in the trash, but I'd be willing to come and box them up myself or purchase them. He said, well, the owner died, and I'm not really sure what the family was doing there. He said, I'll try to figure it out. I said, well, please don't let them get thrown away. Well, a couple of weeks go by, and I get this call, it seemed out of the blue, and it was a deacon here at First Baptist. And he said, Reed, Those books belong to one of the chairmen of our deacon body at First Baptist. And he gave them to us. We just hadn't picked them up yet when you and Amy looked at the house, but we've got them now and we'd love for you to come and get some. So wait, he gave them to you. You've already moved them out of his house and you're a deacon at our church. Okay, now I feel terrible. No, he said, you come get them. We want you to have them. I said, I was just trying to keep them out of the trash. No, really, they're yours. And we go back and forth. And finally he said, listen. Now that we know you want some, who would we be to not share them with you? They were being so generous and humble. And they, were, they said, we'll drop them off at your house if you don't come and pick some out. He was saying this, your desire is public now. We know about it. That changes things. Well, that's exactly what Jesus is saying here. Public confession changes who we are, how we feel we need to act. It's on record. Listen, faith that never becomes public is not real faith at all. Look at the last verse, verse 38. For whoever is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, the Son of Man will also be ashamed of him when he comes in his glory. Matthew says it even stronger. Jesus says, whoever denies me before men, I will deny him also before my Father. Why? Because throughout the New Testament, saving faith is real faith. It always overflows in our actions. It's alive, and the evidence that we believe will come out if we really believe. What kind of husband would I be if I was unwilling to be seen in public with my wife? A terrible husband. Have you gone public about Jesus? Have you let others know he is your Savior? Do you know that Jesus died for us publicly? You want to talk about a reputation problem. How about this? 
the perfect holy God of the universe who is without sin, has never treated any other being than with just perfect justice and love. He decided that he would associate with sinful you and me. He decided that he would get down in all of our pettiness and selfishness. We hurt others all the time. That's a reputation problem for him, isn't it? This is the mercy and grace in the reputation of God. Not only associate with us, but for us. He allowed us to strip him of his clothes, to spit on him publicly, to beat him and to hang him on a tree as the crowds jeered and laughed at him, made fun of him. Come down, you king of the Jews. That's the holy sovereign of the world hanging there for you and me. And some of us would say, well, I don't know if I really want to associate with him. It's an association problem for him because we have done nothing to deserve such a gift. This is why baptism is the only other requirement for membership in our church. Besides believing in Jesus, it's the, we believe baptism is the beginning of going public with our faith. The baptism waters behind me are an outward declaration of our inner faith. I'm going public, a first step of obedience. Peter gets it right, number one, you are the Christ. And the second question, can we get right what Peter gets wrong? Can we get right what Peter gets wrong? The cost, the cost. You know, the disciples were so competitive with each other, weren't they? Really, for most of Jesus' ministry with them, they were arguing over who's the greatest, who's going to sit at his right hand, really right up until the crucifixion. Well, Peter must have been riding high. He's the first one to say, you are the Christ, to declare it. Great job. Can you see his eyes cut across to the other disciples? Oh, Jesus loves me best now. I got it right. I'm good. Look at verse 31. And Jesus began to teach them the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed. And after three days, rise again. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But turning and seeing his disciples, he rebuked Peter and said, Get behind me, Satan. Just as a, a general rule of Bible study, if you ever find yourself rebuking Jesus, it's probably not a good day, is it? If you're rebuking the Son of God, might want to rethink that course of action. Well, from the, the, the best day ever, Peter beating his disciples answers the question everyone's been asking in Mark to being called Satan in the next sentence. Are you kidding me? Worst day ever. See, Peter calls him Christ, but he misses the meaning of Christ. Christ, the word, hasn't appeared since verse 1 of the very opening of Mark. And the Christ is just the Greek translation of the Old Testament word Messiah. Both mean the anointed of God, the one God will send to save his people. There's two aspects of the cost that Peter missed. Two A, if you want to call it that. Peter missed that the Messiah was going to have to suffer. Jesus didn't want to be identified as Messiah yet because the Jewish understanding was so different from who he would be. They thought military conqueror, and he didn't want them thinking that's who he was. So he then, in this chapter, begins to redefine what Messiah means along the suffering servant of Isaiah. 
Isaiah lays it out 700 years before. It's amazing that the Messiah will be oppressed and afflicted. He'll be like a lamb led to slaughter. He'll be silent before his shears. And as he dies for the transgressions of his people, he bears the sin of all. Peter didn't want to hear that. The second thing he missed, he also didn't want to hear that Jesus' disciples would have to suffer. Maybe he especially didn't want to hear that one. It's one thing to get the facts about Jesus right, isn't it? It's still another thing to yield my life to a Messiah who suffers. And it's still even another thing to be willing to pay the price myself. This being willing to pay a price, it becomes a big deal for Peter, doesn't it? Remember, right up until the very end, he's denying Jesus three times. Hey, aren't you the Galilean, one of Jesus' followers? No, you've got me confused with somebody else. I, I tell you, I never knew him. Don't associate me with that guy. It seems it's not until Pentecost and Acts that Peter is finally ready to stand up and say, I follow the Christ. He wants an easy discipleship, doesn't he? Frankly, I want the same thing. If I'm honest, I don't want to suffer. See, for some of us, we're fine with being associated with Jesus. That first part, that's not a problem. We'll walk an aisle. We'll talk the talk. We will get baptized all day long. But when it's going to cost me something, I'm out. No thank you. Look at what he says, verse 34. He summoned the crowd with his disciples and said to them, If anyone wishes to come after me, he must deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. For whoever wishes to save his life will lose it. By the way, I didn't pick this passage this morning. Thanks a lot, Dr. Batson, for what you left me with. Jesus issues a call to all who seek to be his, and the requirements are clear. Self-denial, taking up the cross and following saying yes to God no matter what it costs ourselves. By the time this gospel is penned, Jesus has been obedient to the cross, and he's followed. We often kind of get this cross thing wrong. The cross to first century ears, it's, it's not a means of slow annoyance. The cross is not a means of lifelong pain. The cross means death. Think electric chair. Jesus is calling his followers to come and die to themselves. Discipleship is never depicted as this extracurricular activity or a hobby we can pick up when we want to and then put it back down. God will have the major role in our lives or he will have no part at all. The Wall Street Journal this week, um, it said that Christians are fleeing the Sinai desert in Egypt because ISIS is threatening to kill all of the Christians that live out in the Sinai. Getting up, having to leave all you own, moving. I was talking just a, a couple of days ago to some of our Sudanese members, and they were telling me stories of doing that exact thing. Because of who they are, having to leave their homes, their lives being threatened. Here's the amazing thing about Christian discipleship. It just doesn't mean much until Christ has all of us. But once he has all of us, he can do amazing things. 
Once Jesus has all of you, once he has all of me, the public you, the committed me, he's a master craftsman. He has big plans for our lives. There was an elderly woman who lived way back in the hills of North Carolina, and she operated a little country store and had everything in it, feather pillows to horse collars, lye soap, equipment. It just so happened there was a little bitty creek that ran behind it, just tiny, not, not any fish in it. And one day a farmer came by and saw this dear old lady was sitting at the back of the store with a fishing pole in her hand, and the cork was out in that tiny little creek. He said, Aunt Lizzie, what do you think you're doing? There are no fish in that creek. She said, I know better than anybody that there are no fish in my creek, but it's just so convenient. (laughs) Useless, but convenient. It's kind of what discipleship is when we're not committed to it. Can we get right what Peter gets right, the confession? Can we get right what he gets wrong, the cost? And finally, can we see the reward? The cash, the C-A-C-H-E, the cash, the reward, the treasure. Jesus says, look, I'm going to have to suffer many things, be rejected, but then three days later, rise again. Look at the second half of verse 35. Whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save his life. Or 9-1, you're going to see the kingdom of God. He's talking about what will really profit you and me, what we really need. God has plans for us, but they involve being willing to obey no matter the cost. We want to do away with the tough sayings of Jesus sometimes, don't we? Open a passage, oh man, I gotta read that, I gotta preach on that. We've stressed convenience over commitment, haven't we? Comfort over Calvary, ease over enthusiasm, seeker sensitivity over surrender. And yet only when we surrender can Jesus really get to work. Is there a cost in your life that you've just been unwilling to pay? Is there a step in your obedience that the Holy Spirit's been asking you to take? You've just been saying, no, I won't take that. I won't pay that price. Jesus is telling us it's worth it. It's worth it. There's more value and significance and meaning in our discipleship than we could dream. The power of one single disciple to make a difference is unmatched. A person full of love and light and obedience. I could name names of people in this room and other places who've made a forever indelible mark on my life because of their obedience. Couldn't you do the same? Oh, that we would be known as people of a crucified and risen Lord. That we would be associated with him. Edwin Booth, despite his fame as an actor, would never be known except for his brother's misdeeds. When John Wilkes Booth is your brother, what are you going to do, right? But did you know that Abraham Lincoln's family did not remember Edwin for what his brother did. Not even close. Instead, for the Lincolns, Edwin was known for what he did. 
On a, a train platform in 1864, there was a big crowd. It was really large. And Edwin sees this young boy get pushed by the crowd down into a crevice of the train platform where the oncoming train was literally about to kill the young boy. Edwin quickly ran over. He reached down and vigorously began pulling this young man back up to safety. Well, the young boy later recalled, he said, when I turned around to thank my rescuer, I saw it was Edwin Booth. I knew his face. He was famous, and I expressed my gratitude to him by name. Well, Booth didn't identify the boy, though. He just wished him well until months later he received a letter from his friend Colonel Adam Badeau, who was an officer on the staff of Ulysses S. Grant, the general. Well, Badeau gave his compliments to Booth for his heroic deed in saving the life of Abraham Lincoln's son, Robert Lincoln. I kid you not, the brother to John Wilkes Booth had saved the life of Robert Lincoln, Abraham's son. And Edwin was remembered only for this mighty deed to the Lincoln family. How are you known? Have you gone public with your love for Jesus? He's asking us to. Are you willing to pay whatever price might come from following Jesus because he's telling us it's worth it. There's no cost we could pay that wouldn't be worth it. He loves you. He wants you to know that feeling of standing publicly with him. It's a part of our discipleship. It's a part of his love and grace for each of us. Would we stand together? Let's pray. Father God, we come to you this morning saying we want to stand with you. We want to be known by who you are and what you've done for this world, your love and grace and mercy. Maybe there's one here who's been putting off some aspect of discipleship, maybe that initial aspect of going public. Oh God, would you give them the grace to follow through in obedience? Would you give each of us the grace to follow through in that next step that you're calling us to? We pray this in the name of your son, the crucified and risen Lord of all that is.